Welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. So grateful to have you with us. And today we're going to discuss something that's a dream for many avid travelers. I'm talking about shifting your life so that you can travel indefinitely. And we're going to talk first about how to do that by becoming an RVer, and second, about doing that by living on board a boat. But let's get to the RV life first. And for that, I have probably the greatest experts on the planet in this type of lifestyle. They are Julie and Mark Bennett. You may know their YouTube videos under RV Love. They have two fabulous books out right now. One is called RV Hacks, 400 plus ways to make life on the road easier, safer, and more fun. The other one is called Living the RV Life, Your Ultimate Guide to Life on the Road. Mark, Julie, welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. Well, thank you, thank you. Pauline. I'm very so excited to be here. And thank you for some of those lovely words they you said. very lovely words. Thank you so much. We've been big well, fans of Fromer for a long time. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate this, that. And, and I got to ask, where am I talking to you? Where is your RV parked right now? We are currently in a in a state park in just a bit north of Denver, Colorado. Oh, that's nice. That's lovely. That must be beautiful this time of year. Uh, it really so, is. So I wanted to just start with your story. How did you decide to shift your life so that you could have a life of permanent travel? Well, you know, it came to us in 2014. I had always wanted to work remotely, was finally able to pull that off and be able to work remotely. And just a short time after that, maybe two months, I thought, hey, now that I can work, home can be anywhere. And so we sure. decided to shift from our traditional home to an RV because that would allow us to travel the country with our dog, everything with us. The home is always there. And so as soon as I get off of work with my limited time off, I would already be at an amazing destination to go check it out. You know, we're, we walk out my door and we're at the Grand Canyon and next week we're at the Key, Key West or maybe two well, weeks. Maybe, later. yeah, that's, that's a long <laughs> But you get the Demonstrates gist. Demonstrates the point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you make it sound very simple, but it's not. I mean, you wouldn't have been able to support two books if it had been that simple. So, so Julie, how long did it take you to shift from a life in a home to a life in a motorhome? Yeah, that's a great question, Pauline, because it really is very different to just buying an RV to go on weekends and vacations. When you're buying an RV for the purpose of living in it and traveling full time and working in it, in our case, we spent, I would say, about nine months really intensely researching everything about the different kinds of RVs available and just the different aspects of the lifestyle that you need to consider when you're when you're giving up a home base. You know, you don't have a home. You 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 how do you downsize your stuff? What do you really need to take with you? What do you do with your mail? I mean, voting, banking, taxes. There are so many considerations that are way beyond. Well, you know, do we want to? RV with a queen bed or a king bed or where are we going to put the laptop and work? So there's a lot of very interlinked decisions, really. And, you know, I yeah. think we're pretty thorough researchers and uh, we did that, yeah, about nine months and then we hit the road in the summer of 2014. We continued learning all along. We've so. never stopped learning. I don't think mm -hmm. anybody ever stops learning. And for us, that's one of the things that's so fun about the lifestyle. Right. Uh, let's just start with the basic thing which is the RV. I've actually written about RVs and I've I've taken a vacation in an RV and 
I think we actually made a big mistake with the RV we chose to vacation in. It was this massive hulking, I think called Class A RV. And we discovered, we we drove it from uh, Phoenix to the Grand Canyon and then discovered we couldn't really leave the Grand Canyon because we couldn't take it to other parking lots. And we had to rent a rental car to get around. So how do people know what size of RV to get, what the cost ranges are? Can you go through just a little bit of those concerns? Well, I think it's great that you shared that personal experience. And and it's great that you did rent before at least not buying such a big coach like that. Because there is, yeah. a, it's as Julie mentioned, it's a very complex and interlinked decision on how to set up your rig. And a piece of advice we'd have is that is to try and go as small as you think you can comfortably travel in because Mm. so many people are moving out of houses and into an RV and think, oh, I have to have the biggest thing there is. And, uh, you know, we did travel in a class A for probably a big chunk of our travels, more than five years of it, but we towed a car behind us. So we always Ah. had that secondary vehicle to go do running around. And then people on the other side of it would tow a trailer so they'd have to do the exploring with their truck or a towing vehicle. But there's a lot of different ways to approach that. But a smaller RV is a really great way to still be nimble and get all of your exploring in with the same RV. You know, you have it with you all the time. So would your advice be to rent first, to rent different types and just try them out? I do think that's a really great idea. I mean, I think the first step is to do extensive research on the different types. And so you have a good feel of what you might want to rent because you can rent every different type out there. But then once you do that, I would highly recommend renting at least one before you sign on the dotted line on a major purchase like that. And I think that's why we see so many Class C rentals out there. You know, those ones that have the branding on the side and you'll see them in national parks. They're a very popular choice because it's very easy to get out of a regular vehicle and drive something like that compared to, say, that big Class A that you rented. That would be a much steeper learning curve than than something that's on a regular automotive And to answer the other part of your question, too, on the cost, I mean, you can buy a really simple little pop-up trader that might be able to be able to tow behind a small mid-sized SUV up until the millions of dollars for some of the big Class A's. So there's a huge range So how much is the cheapest one? So it's uh, up to the millions, but what's the the usual starting? And and I can't imagine anybody living in a pop-up, although I'm sure people do. I'm sure people do. But, you know, the the entry (laughs) point is only uh, only around $10,000 to get into an RV. Um, so, But I think a lot of people that do extended travel, uh, we often see people spend between $50,000 and 150000 for their whole setup between a, an RV and something to tow behind it or a towing vehicle and a trailer. That's a general range that we see a lot of people in that are doing full-time right. travel. And I think one thing to add to that is, you know, you don't have to buy new. And I think that's a very common uh, perception of especially people that are new to RVing think, well, if I buy a new, I won't have any problems. You know, I've got the warranty, and that's what a lot of people think with a new car. RVs are different, and so you can actually get some great quality RVs on the used market for much lower than what you would pay new. So I think you know that that how much it's a little bit like asking <laughs> how long is a piece of string, and I think coming down to quality is a good choice, and getting a good used RV is often a better choice, especially for newer people than buying uh, right. buying a new RV. Well, you make the point in in one of the books, I was looking through both of them, that it's going to depreciate in value. I mean, it's not something you buy really as an investment as you might a house, although you, you kind of balance that with, yeah, but with a house, you might have a mortgage, 
you might have uh, these property taxes. There, are, There's a lot of money you have to put into a house. So even though it's not going to be an investment with an RV, it's a life. Right. It is it's a lifestyle change. And especially if you're getting into it full time, as you opened up the call with today, is that if you're transitioning like Julie and I did, where you're selling the home and jumping into this full both feet, then you're trading one expense for the other. And it's fine. And as long as you go in with eyes wide open on what those expenses are and those depreciation and all those other aspects, then it can be a pretty good trade. And what's interesting is right now, the demand in the RV space is so high because there's so many mm. people ex- ex- discovering yeah. this lifestyle, especially with all the remote working that happened in this last right. year, that yeah. RVs have actually not been depreciating very much this last huh. year and maybe not the next. But in the bigger picture, absolutely. Anything with wheels, you plan on it depreciating, not like a traditional home. And some people, to your point too, I mean, typically real estate does appreciate but. Depending on the top parts of the country, we have people that were paying, you know, twenty, thirty thousand dollars a year in property taxes up in New Jersey. You know, or people in California. Depending on what part of the country you're in, can really depend on because that that's kind of dead money too, isn't it? Property yeah. taxes in a way. Mm-hmm. But but you know, some people will rent their home out, and so they still have that appreciating asset, and then the rental income will pay their mortgage, or if they own their home, then it's paying help paying for their lifestyle. So. You don't have to sell everything and go in boots and all like we did. There, there are mm. lots of different ways to do lots it. It's a very personal choice. It. Yeah, Absolutely. sure. Well, so that's somewhat of the financial side, but there's also a psychic side. And I don't mean seeing the future. I just mean, <laughs> I mean, your psyche. And, and you, you raised an interesting point, Julie, in one of the books. You were nervous getting into this lifestyle that you would have only very shallow relationships with the people you met because- you wouldn't live next door to a neighbor for years, or, or you wouldn't see people in the same social situations over and over again. Did that come to pass? It, it did, but it took a little time. And I think community is so important and relationships. And I think for, for most of us, you know, we have community, whether it's family or in our neighborhood or the people, you know, at the local coffee shop or, or whatever. But when we hit the road, Mark had a job with a regular, with a structure. And hmm. I wasn't working at the time. I was I was writing and learning to make videos for YouTube. And so I didn't have that work structure. And so I had less, I guess, anchors in my life. And so the relationship side of things was very important to me. And I was just worried about having these fleeting conversations. Well, where are you from? What do you do? What's, right. what's yeah. And, and that, that was kind of very concerning to me. But what I found is that in the RV lifestyle, you never quite know when you're going to see that person again, especially full-timers like us. And so you kind of got... you. You cut through a lot of that surface level conversation and get to real oh. conversation faster. And so we've actually found that over probably took a few months to really start building community on the road. And now with online resources and, you know, Facebook and social media, it's been a lot easier. And so it took a while to adjust. I always say to people, give yourself patience, give each other patience as you're adjusting to this lifestyle. And but know that there's a lot of real such a wonderful group of people out in the RV lifestyle, really helpful and friendly. We've 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 got more. We've got friends all around the country now. <laughs> yeah, and to Julie's point, we did have we have found the RV community to be very outgoing and friendly and helpful. I mean, if you're an introvert, you can find your way to be completely by yourself. But if you like to engage with other people, people are often outside of their RVs or quote unquote homes a lot more often than they are in traditional suburbs or neighborhoods. And so mm-hmm. you have that interaction, and there's a lot of talking points. And one thing I think is really interesting about this RV lifestyle is that you can get. T- 
just start a conversation with someone outside of their RV and, oh, how do you like that? And it's, oh, well, come in and check it out. I mean, how often in a regular neighborhood does someone invite <laughs> you into their home <laughs> to check it out? But I, right. to Julie's point, too, with the fast friends, you know, they – yeah, I think because you know your time is fleeting, people you know, get away through the minutia and they also are you know, not afraid to share more of their true self because whether you like them or not, they'll be gone the next day. <laughs> Do you find that you meet the same types of people over and over or are you meeting... I think there's uh, some cliches about RVing that it's a lot of retired folks. How many families do you meet? How many young couples? I mean, who do you who do you meet on the road? We see a lot. And especially since we started, you know, back in 2014, Pauline, when we started out, you know, in our 40s, we were among the younger people that we would see in the campgrounds because, as you said, a lot of retired folks are out there living their RV dream in their retirement years. But it's been so interesting seeing the shift in the demographics with so many more families and uh, mm-hmm. now, again, as Mike said earlier, you know, with the remote, remote work and technology making it possible for more people to be working from the road. But we see families road schooling their kids, you know, homeschooling wow. their kids in RVs. We've seen families, you know, traveling with one child all the way up to 12, believe it or not. Wow. Uh, what yes. size RV is that? <laughs> well, they actually had an interesting It was setup. an interesting combination where they had a f- large truck to tow a, f- a fifth wheel that would they would all sleep in, but they also oh. had a passenger van that towed a cargo trailer with all their clothes and bikes and it's stuff. Like so they had a, a, a large setup that would require <laughs> two campsites off it, but... It was, but you, you see really run the gamut. And to Julie's point, we've definitely seen that shift in the demographics. And I see that shift continuing right now. You see, yeah. we re- really meet all different types. And that's part of the fun is that you aren't as limited as you are in a traditional neighborhood. You have a, a wider socioeconomic yeah. group and a wider diversity mm. in ages when you meet your neighbors out on the road. Wow. All right. Let's talk about some of the uh, practicalities. How do you vote? And I'm well, not asking if you're Republican or Democratic. <laughs> no, that's <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, and I, that was very similar to the first question Julie and I had when we first had the idea of this lifestyle is how do you get your mail? And then how do you vote and how do you get your mail are also quite interlinked in that it's all related to domicile versus residence. You can have many different residences, but only mm-hmm. one domicile. And that's where you are really stating as your home base, whether that be a actual physical location and you have friends and family checking your actual mail there. Or if you have a mailbox forwarding company um, like escapees is what we used and they can qualify as an actual address for you. And that's where you would vote for that district. And a lot of times Uh you're just doing a remote voting, um, voting by mail and such like that. But sometimes you actually return to that hometown during a voting season and vote in person if you really wanted to. But we always voted from the mail. You always vote about that may be harder depending it, on where your home domicile yes. is. A lot exactly. of a lot of laws are changing right and now. And that was actually part of the reason we chose the city we did for our domicile is because it had such a large population of full time RVers that we knew huh. that that town would always be very protective of the rights of those full time RVers because they actually almost outnumbered the people who live there. So it's interesting. Wow, he says all about the research. Can I ask mm-hmm. where that is? That was a town in Texas called Livingston, Texas, and that's where oh. there's a large base. Just outside of Houston, mm-hmm. and Escape Bees is a is an RV club that's been around since the 70s, and they're they're real advocates for full time uh, for all RVs, but especially great services for full time RVs to make it easy for us to, you know, we got our new license plates sent through the mail. 
We don't wow. have to go back there every year to get our registration for, you know, where some states, for example, Arizona, some friends of ours bought an RV in 2009 in August and they had to keep going back to Arizona in August and nobody wants to That's be in Arizona in August. Oh, my goodness. And, yeah. and so they changed. They changed their domicile to Florida, so it made it huh. just a lot more. So it's it's different for everyone. We were Texas, Florida, state, South Dakota are three great states, but it's Those really, again, a very, very personal choice and that's why there are a lot of factors and we don't have time to go into that. Yeah, now. That's it could all be tax laws, all kinds yeah. of different factors that go into that. But it's, oh, but it's sure. a lot of options. Yeah, all right, so we've we've talked price, we've talked practicalities, we've talked friendships, but we haven't really talked about why you did this. Can you give us some statistics and anecdotes about why this is a great uh, lifestyle for you? How many places have you visited? How many miles have you driven over well, the, since you started doing this? We've driven over 100,000 miles in the RVs, and we also wow. have been to all 50 states, most of them multiple times. And uh, mm-hmm. it's just really wonderful. We still feel like you scratched the surface after all those years. And mind you, we were still working full time. So we travel a little bit slower pace than some uh-huh. others who are just out there enjoying the lifestyle exclusively. But we are always working full time. And so that does limit our travel pace. But we've seen so many wonderful experiences in over the years. Yeah, well, I, I read 50. in your book, Julie, you're from Australia and you, you've yes. done this in Australia too. How, how different is it to RV in Australia than it is here in the U.S.? Well, I did a little bit of RVing in Australia compared to here. My dad and his wife are actually big. We call them caravans down there, caravans or motorhomes. And it, it is different because a lot of the – America, we're so lucky here that we've got this big infrastructure of the highways and campgrounds and accessibility, but Australia's a, a little bit more difficult than that. You can definitely do it, but it's it's a big country. It's very similar size to the United States, in fact, but there's not a lot in the middle. <laughs> so uh, you right. know, tend to stick more around in the coasts, you know, down the East Coast or over on the West Coast, it tend to be more popular. And therefore, motorhomes are often very popular in those areas, it's like those little class B motorhomes are very popular for that. But you know, the roads can also be a bit more rugged when you get a little bit more out of the main metropolis and you, you need something that's really capable with a bit more rugged terrain. Yeah, and they generally have smaller RVs, which have smaller capacities. When uh-huh. And so, therefore, the campgrounds are more set up around people having com- shared like resources common like common kitchens and common oh. bathrooms, whereas in America, RVs are more self-sufficient and larger in general. And uh, because, like, like said, Julie said, the, our infrastructure here for RVing is so much more robust. And our, and our national park system, I mean, it's just, as Mark said, having visited all 50 states and many of them multiple times, we still feel like we're just scratching the surface. Wow. There's so much to see here. It's, it really is an extraordinary country. And, and all, there's honestly so much to see beyond just the national park system, which is what is so popular. But right now they're so crowded and yeah. we want to encourage people to know that there is so many amazing places you can see that aren't necessarily national parks. And we're, we're kind of skipping national parks this year. <laughs> we just said, let everyone else go enjoy them. So we'll what, go back. Give, us, give us some examples of, of some things that, that you should do differently this year because of the crowds on the road. I mean, you said skip the national parks. Where do you go instead? Or at least the major national the major parks, the ones that everyone hears about, like Grand Canyon, Yellowstone, Tetons. You look at for some of the lesser known um, RV or uh, national yeah. parks and state parks, and even national just some monuments. some area, national monuments. Absolutely, absolutely, and just even places that just smaller towns, and just get out and explore and uh, 
give yourself some radius around those campgrounds because this year is it's the year of RVing. There's really so many people out here. Uh, the RV industry has just been booming. You know, we had right. 400,000 units sold last year and that was with them shut down for a couple of months. This My year, goodness. they're expecting, I think, 550,000. That's a 30% increase. There's so many people getting into this lifestyle and that's because that's just new units, not used. Yeah. 46 so million, that mean I think. People should definitely get advanced reservations at RV campgrounds this summer. I think if you have to be at a certain place at a certain time, then yes, absolutely. And I think some people don't like to plan too much ahead. So if if you like to plan yeah. or you have a set you know time frame, then I would definitely do that. But some people like to just you know explore a little bit more serendipitously too, and that's where you can you know go during the week. Like if you want weekends and holiday weekends, definitely make reservations because they are booking up quickly. But we have found that getting reservations during the week has been pretty easy. Uh, Sunday through Thursday nights are Mm. great. If you have that flexibility in your schedule, which, you know, it's great to see so many more people getting that now. Um, But like Mike said, just go, instead of just going to a a popular area, look within a 50 mile radius and you'd be surprised what else you can find there. Well, excellent advice. And I, for one, am am jealous. (laughs) It sounds like you guys have a, have a ball with your lifestyle and Thank you so, so much for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show. Thank you for having us. Our next guest is Nick Ransom. He and his partner, Lee, do what Julie and Mark do, but on water. They are live aboard boaters. And I know that that Lee had to be somewhere else, but thank you so much, Nick, for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show. Of course, Pauline. Super happy to be here. So you own a boat, you live on a boat, you go to different marinas all over the world. How, How did you decide to make this your lifestyle? Well, originally, it's funny you were talking about RVers because we were looking into van life and converting a van on the weekends, going out, not having to worry about finding a hotel or right. a camping, just being able to go out in the wild and enjoy that lifestyle. And Lee grew up on a sailboat um, with his family. So he oh, wow. got to travel around, go sailing all the time. And he was like, hey, we could do this. We can make this a lifestyle. So a little bit of research. A couple months later, we... Um, moved on board the boat. We've been on board for about a year now, our 46-foot catamaran, and we're loving life. Wow. Well, can I ask you uh, a personal question? How how much does it cost to buy a boat generally? So that really depends. Um, for us, we looked into a catamaran because we wanted our dog, Cooper, to have a little bit more of a, a stable lifestyle, as you know, or as you may know, if you live on a, a monohull sailboat, whenever the, the sails catch wind, you tend to live life at a list. So you're going to mm. be, stuff's going to be flying from one side of the boat to the other. And we really wanted to make sure the boat was a little bit more stable. So going into that, catamarans are a little bit more expensive because people like to use them for charters. So they know people right. pay a little bit more money. That being said, it was um not not too expensive to find the right catamaran. She's a little bit on the older side, about 16 years old. Uh, and then costs that go into it after that really just depend on uh, the slip you're at and um, how expensive the marina is that you're living in. Well, I found you through the website Dakwa, which finds different slips all over the world. Mm-hmm. How much 
can a slip cost? And does it vary incredibly greatly by country by country? Oh, uh, yeah. Region it, by region? Yes, it does. So, for instance, uh, if you're just looking to find a mooring ball to go and attach to for the weekend, so more or less you're, you're not attached to land, you're out at anchor, but using a mooring, uh, those cost anywhere from 130, $130 to $160 to, to rent out to live at huh. a month. Per night? Um, uh, no, for, for a month. Oh, um, per, per night. Depending on where you're going at in the world, like California tends to be a little bit more expensive, but tends to tend to run anywhere from fifty to eighty dollars a night, whether you're at a mooring or at a slip, because your tent you're gonna be using all of their facilities, their electricity, their water. So it's a little bit cheaper than a hotel maybe, but um yeah, it, Aqua really helps out when you're trying to find the right price because you can pull up all the marinas that are available to you. You can see how much their facilities cost and pick the one that's really right for you so you know you won't be breaking the bank if you show up somewhere. Well, this is something I meant to discuss with the RV folks because I know that there's become this there's this movement of people who, you know, might own a farm. And they mm-hmm. rent out part of their land to campers and RVers. Do you go only to professionally run marinas and slips, or do some people simply rent out places on their docks? So that I can't speak to because I have not yet seen that on Docwa. Huh. Most of them are uh, professionally run marinas or slips, but I'm sure there's someone out there Um uh, for instance, there's restaurants <laughs> and stuff in San Diego Harbor, which have their own docks. You can, yeah, you can pull up to grab a couple of beers, some food, and then you have to leave because there's usually a line of boats that want to use the restaurant as well. But um, I'm sure there's yeah. someone out there who rents out their dock to, to boaters. So you've been doing this for a, a year. It must be a smaller space than what you were used to. How did you get ready to move on to a boat full time? Actually, it was pretty easy. You don't need any of your furniture because the boat has all the furniture built in. So we sold all the furniture. Wow. Uh, Downsized a little bit on clothing, but we didn't have a whole lot of clothes to begin with. But we we found it was very easy converting over to a boat, especially in Southern California, where um, you might be looking for a six to 800 square foot apartment and be spending an incredible amount of money if you buy it. And whereas buying this boat was about half the the cost of getting a home or apartment in San Diego. About the same square footage without the yard. And you obviously, I would assume, are working remotely. That's how you're supporting yourself while living on the boat. That probably Mm -hmm. requires Wi-Fi. How do you keep that consistently? Do you get that through the marina or do you have your own hotspot? I mean, how do those things work? Yeah, so we do have marina Wi-Fi. Uh, We just have to make sure our Wi-Fi antenna is pointed in the right direction. But once we're underway, as long as we are within like cell phone service range from land, we do have a Wi-Fi puck, which um, our cell phone service provides to us for free. We just have to buy the puck and it gives us an extra amount of gigabytes a month just to use off of that that Wi-Fi puck. And I got to ask, how, how many places have you gone and what kind of adventures have you had with this lifestyle? It sounds like you like it and you want to keep going with it. Why should other people follow in your, I, want, I can't say footsteps, can I? <laughs> follow in your wake. There you go. That's good. Follow yeah. in our wake. Yeah. Um, so we've been a, a good amount all over Southern California with both of our jobs, myself being in the Navy and Lee just getting out of the Marine Corps, but now finding a, a naval contracting career. We're... Oh. We don't have a whole lot of off time with those jobs, but when we do get a four or five day weekend or have some time off, 
Um, we've gone to Catalina, which is a good day and a half sail to and from. We've gone all the way up as far north as LA, which doesn't, it's not too far. And then we've got some spots that we've gone within the San Diego Harbor, like Mission Bay, a lot of different, a lot of different harbors and um, coves here and there throughout San Diego that we can go to. And just a, t- a typical thing you deal with when you're just starting off getting a new boat is insurance will usually have some limitations on where you can and can't go. So unfortunately for the first three years that we have the boat, so two more years to go, um, we are not allowed to leave United States territorial waters. So uh, one because one, be, is that because of your jobs? Uh, not just because of our jobs, just because insurance, um, this being our first boat that we've ever owned, they're like, okay, well, we want to make sure you're not going down to Panama and partying oh, yeah. and potentially causing more, more risk for us. So we are a little bit more constrained, but if you are a prior boat owner or you get maybe a little bit of a smaller boat you're, or you find the right insurance company that's willing to let you go wherever, um, you can definitely do some more grandeur uh, adventures. But we definitely plan on going down to Cabo, things like that, sailing over to Hawaii, maybe all the way up the coast to San Francisco. Wow. Um, the previous boat owners actually sailed it around the circumnavigated the globe twice and spent wow. about three years in the South Pacific. So this this boat has done it all before and we plan on doing it all again in the future. Very cool. And when you're at the marinas, you must meet other liveaboarders, right? I mean, what who are they? Are they retirees? Are they families? Who who are you meeting at the marinas? We meet the widest range group of people. We've met a good amount of young folk that are out trying to do the same thing that we're doing. We've met people who are retired or one couple that lives down uh, the marina from us. They built their boat in a garage in Colorado and shipped it out here. And they've been wow. living on it for, yeah, they've been living on it for 18 years now. Like the, you just meet the the widest range group of people and social media has definitely helped out with that a lot. I'm thinking that's probably one, oh, of, the, sure. one of the yeah. few positives of social media is being able to link with other boaters and, we we had um, a little side story. We were out at sea troubleshooting. We couldn't get our water maker to work, so we were out of fresh water. And using our Wi-Fi puck, we were able to like shoot out a little help call on uh, on social media. And we had three people reach out and be like, "Oh, we have that same water maker. We're able to fix it for you. Like these are the steps wow. you can take." And they helped us fix it out at sea, which was just incredible. So you, you meet a really really wide range of people all over the place. And some of them have dogs, some of them have cats. Um, one of the boaters we met had a parrot. So you meet them all. <laughs> well, I would hope, I, actually, I think it should be a requirement. I think every liveaboard boater should have a parrot. <laughs> pirate lifestyle. But anyway, yeah, the pirate lifestyle. Well, before I let you go, what's been the biggest surprise to you for, of living this type of lifestyle or the biggest delight? What What's the most fun about it? I guess it's kind of a double-edged sword. I knew it was going to happen, but I didn't know to what extent, but just the boat maintenance. So hmm. everything that goes into the boat, so there, there's going to be things that break. You're living in salt sure. water. Things are going to yeah. corrode. Things are going to get old. You need to replace certain parts of the boat. But that's what kind of makes it fun if you're into that stuff is that you can really take on each project and make it your own. And you really feel like a, a sense of pride and um with all the blood, sweat, and tears that you put into your home. Whereas most homes, you have a homeowner's association or someone that'll come out and fix something. A plumber, Grand, you can still have those uh, same people come out and help you with your boat. But if you're willing to take on those projects yourself or have some of the other boat neighbors that you may meet and on docks along the way, come over and help out. Like you really get a sense of pride on, on where you're living. 
Wow. Well, it just sounds amazing. Uh, thank you so much, Nick, for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show. And I guess it's ahoy. And what, how do you say goodbye at sea? Fair winds and following seas. <laughs> oh, beautiful. So it's fair winds and following seas. Thank you so much, Nick, uh, for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show. And, and thanks to all our listeners. That is it for this week's show. But I'll be back next week. And as always, to anybody who's traveling, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. Watching K. Cave-